Father in heaven, we have sung praise to you. We have worshipped you with our mouths. We want to worship you with our hearts. And we pray that you will help us also to know how to worship you with our minds, our heads. May that be something we can learn together and study together during this hour. In Jesus' name. Everything we've said so far about music has something to do with our humanness. Music is a human activity. People like to fuss about birdsong. Yeah, okay, that's another issue. That's not a human activity. It may communicate. I'm not going to argue that it doesn't. Ellen White talks about the birds making the air vocal with their happy melodies and probably also staking out territories and households. Okay. For those of us who believe that we are the magnificent product, and people, I'm going to emphasize that again. We do not have enough awe about our own bodies. David had it figured out we are wonderfully and fearfully made. Yep. And he didn't know the tenth of it. For those of us who believe we are the magnificent product of an amazingly creative and loving mind, and who therefore believe that we owe something to the owner, of that great mind. There is a necessary corollary. How does music fit in our lives if we are intentional about acknowledging the fact that we are creatures? Is music an experience which is singular to our species? Is there any manifestation of music beyond our planet? How did music get to be part of what we are or who we are? And how does it relate to worship? I'm going to start by reading you a portion of the introduction to Marvadon's second book. And you will find, if you look at the bibliography, that I put highly recommended, very highly recommended, beside these books. Marvadon is a Lutheran writer, a woman who is a theologian, with, who has done pastoral work and has also done uh, independent ministry of various sorts. She is also a musician, a fascinating person. And her first book on the subject of worship was Reaching Out Without Dumbing Down. I looked at the title and I said, I need to at least read this once. That's a subject that interests me. And the fact is, it is a marvelous, marvelous book. My copy is so highlighted here and there, I can hardly read it anymore. And she got such a response to that book that she wrote a second one entitled A Royal Waste of Time. And that's also well worth it. And both of these were surprises to her. She had no idea she was going to write about worship. The subject came to her attention. She felt obliged. Here's part of the introduction to her book, A Royal Waste, and and waste is in quotes, okay? A Royal Waste of Time. To worship the Lord is, in the world's eyes, a waste of time. It is indeed a royal waste of time, but a waste nonetheless. By engaging in it, we do not accomplish anything useful in our society's terms. Worship ought not to be construed in a utilitarian way. Its purpose is not to gain numbers, nor for our churches to be seen as successful. Rather, the entire reason for our worship is that God deserves it. Moreover, it is not useful in earning points with God. For what we do in worship will not change one whit how God feels about us. We will always still be helpless sinners caught in our endless inability to be what we should be or make ourselves better. And God will always still be merciful 
compassionate and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, and ready to forgive us as we come to him. Worship is a royal waste of time. But it is indeed royal, for it immerses us in the regal splendor of the king of the cosmos. The church's worship provides opportunities for us to enjoy God's presence in corporate ways that take us out of time and into the eternal purposes of God's kingdom. As a result, we shall be changed. But not because of anything we do. God, on whom we are centered and to whom we submit, will transform us by his revelation of himself. To understand worship as a royal waste of time is good for us because it frees us to enter into the poverty of Christ. We worship a triune God who chose to rescue the world he created by means of the way of humility. God sent his son into the world to empty himself in the obedience of a slave, humbling himself to suffer throughout his entire life and to die the worst of deaths on our behalf. He did not come to be solving the world's problems in any sense that the world could understand. Worship of such a God immerses us in such a way of life, empowered by a spirit who does not equip us with means of power or control, accomplishment or success, but with the ability and the humility to waste time in the love of our neighbor. If all of worship is God-centered, what makes us think that God cares to have any music involved in our worship service? Does music in worship, is it somehow God-ordained, or is it just a human idea that we stuck in there because it makes us feel better or helps us focus? Does the fact that worship is a royal waste of time justify adding on the trappings of royalty, which would include high culture or folk culture or any culture or company manners or good dress or whatever else? It would seem that a church whose primary scriptural mandate is fear God and give glory to him and worship him that made should have a clear, consistent, intentional theology of worship. Where did we get our picture of the proper things to include or exclude from our corporate gatherings? And it may be of interest also that we still have no really adequate theology of music. And the reasons, I think, are a little more interesting and somewhat more com complex. I'd like to talk about it briefly, because this lack of a theology of music is a concern of mine. I did not know the name Charlie Peacock. Anybody know the name Charlie Peacock? Good. One? Interesting. Two? Okay. Interesting. I didn't know the name Charlie Peacock at all until I read Dr. Bakayoki's book, The Christian Rock Music. I gather Charlie Peacock is one of the brighter lights in what's called the contemporary Christian music movement. He is an award-winning recording artist, producer, and songwriter. And I assure you that my ignorance says a lot more about me than it says about him. I learned by typing his name in the iTunes search window that he had at least 150 items that I could buy for 99 cents apiece, if I chose. And I listened to some of the 30-second sound samples that you can have before you buy. And I found them less interesting then a quotation on page 162 of Dr. Bakayoki's book, which is taken from Charlie Peacock, a book entitled At the Crossroads, which book I also wanted to get a copy and read. I've read at least some of it. Here's what Mr. Peacock said. Quote, What is missing from contemporary Christian music is a comprehensive theology of music in general and a theology of CCM artistry, industry, and audience in particular. 
In order to begin to rethink contemporary Christian music, we will first have to recognize the necessity of developing a comprehensive theology. Interesting words from an interesting source. He continues, without God's thoughts and God's ways, we are left with our own dim and insufficient ideas. If we willfully choose to neglect the work of building truthful theologies for our callings, we will find ourselves waving goodbye to the brightness which illuminates life. We will find ourselves stumbling blindly down the way which seems right to a man, but leads to nothing but darkness. Heavy words, whether you're thinking CCM or Adventist Church. I do not have the time or any particular interest to supply his lack of a theology for CCM. That's not my business. I do have a very strong conviction, however, that most of the tensions which surface in our church about the worship of God arise because we do not have a credible theology of music, either music in general or church music. I've talked with someone who was on the committee that at least came up with the philosophy of music, and I talked about the theology of music. He said, write it quick, write it quick. We've been trying for years. I'm not a theologian. I do have ideas. But I have some pretty good ideas why it hasn't happened. I'd like to suggest some, because... While I don't think we can excuse the fact, we may be able to explain it somewhat. There's a difference between a reason and an excuse, yeah? Okay. First of all, theology is a rigorously structured, highly involved discipline. I went to the dictionary to find out what theology is, and it says, quote, a usually four-year course of specialized religious training in a Roman Catholic major seminary. (laughs) Okay, well, whatever. From experience, I can tell you that the study of music is also a powerfully complex, full-time occupation, which nobody I know would consider it adequately treated in four years at any stage in your life. Music is a long-term, full-life study. Been there? Still doing that. Okay? Precious few individuals have ever developed enough expertise in both fields to really talk intelligently about the issue. Like I said, that's not an excuse. It is a reason. There just are not that many people. One of the few, undoubtedly, was Martin Luther, who was a profoundly effective musician and, of course, a great theologian. And, in fact, he had a good deal to say about music inside and outside the church. He is one of the major resources, would have to be a major resource, in studying music theology. Number two, music, because it is so insubstantial, almost ephemeral, is simply not seen as worthy of a place in something as overwhelmingly important as theology. It's just not that big an item. That music is seen as a peripheral which can be easily dismissed is clear from the attitude of school administrators who, when the budget gets tight, do what? You got it. I know music education is expensive. It always has been. It's always going to be. We've never paid for ourselves. Not yet. Not ever will. The history teachers can pay for themselves. 150 students out there, one teacher, okay? We teach one-on-one. There's no way we can charge tuition high enough to make it worth it. We are a loser, financially. Financially, okay? Financially. thought I'd get that in there. Number three, theologies in general, and biblical theologies in particular, have as their recognized focus the study of one specific God, as they explore his manifestations and interactions with his creatures. Music, on the other hand, 
is almost as vast a field as can be imagined, covering everything from Gregorian chant, which we heard some of in the last session, to country western, from the gamelan orchestras of Indonesia to the operas of Europe, from strum, strumming a guitar folk style to electronic synthesis, yes, and manipulating sound materials. The very breadth of musical styles militates against any single study ever being able to do justice to the whole. And since there will always be some additional type of musical event, the job of relating music, music to theology is very frustrating, indefinably endless. Where does it quit? I don't know. Number four, as far as the specifically Adventist theology of music is concerned, we are, and ought to be, one of the most polyglot organizations in the world. We get people from everywhere. Every background, every nationality, every culture, and we should. I'm not complaining, believe me. However, since we believe that our missiological mandate covers the whole globe, as a result, we welcome into our fellowship persons of every possible ethnicity, culture, social background, whatever else. Is it any wonder that we've had a hard time making a unified theology of music? Where does the word worship come from? Excuse me? To bow down, excellent. That's going to be its etymology back a ways. It actually comes from two words, worth-ship, worth-ship. Occasionally, there are people whom we, we, we approach as your eminence or your highness or your worthiness or worthiness, worthiness. You ever call anybody your worthiness? I didn't either. But there are situations where that has been the appropriate address. The milkmaid on the estate of the duke, if she approached him, addressed him as your worthiness. Okay? Your wor- and she showed recognition of his worth. By doing a what? A courtesy. Which we, of course, contracted into. Yeah, okay. Same idea. So worship is an acknowledgement of worth, a bowing down, a dipping, okay, if you please. Are there human beings who are worthy of your respect? I see most people that are doing anything, doing this. Are there persons who are worthy of your respect? Yeah, okay, on what basis? Luke 10:7. the Lord says, a laborer is worthy of of his hire. Okay. Apparently it's legal to use the word that way. Is it fair to read then as a corollary that the laborer is under obligation to be worthy of his hire? Probably. On what basis do we assume someone is worthy? On the basis of the amount of money he has? Well, I know of some people. Yeah, I even know some people who have a lot of money, who got it honestly and who use it morally. And I respect them. And you know some too. You could name one or two at least. People who have more than I've got. Okay? And we're all rich people. Don't ever forget it. Don't ever forget it. We are all incredibly rich in this country. Astonishingly rich. Somebody who's worthy on the basis of his scholarship, 
Possibly. I would hope he's using his scholarship to better humanity's lot somehow. But those who have studied are worthy of recognition for their study. On the basis of political office, perhaps. We have a harder time with that, don't we? Depends on how many pork barrel projects he manages to scrunch through, right? Ah, shucks. On behalf on, on, uh, do we recognize worthiness for their spiritual vigor? I tell you, it was an awesome bunch to stand in line with last night up there on the platform. Woo! Wonderful people. I know a few of them. On the basis of beneficence, what they have done, giving, the centurion who built the Jews a synagogue in Capernaum, what did they say? He's worthy. Was he worthy? In their eyes, at least, certainly. He was worthy because he had built them a synagogue. What did he say of himself? He said, I'm not worthy. That's interesting. How about that? Was the prodigal son ever worthy to be called his father's son? Please shake your heads this way. (laughs) Worthiness has nothing to do with it. You're the son or you aren't a son. I think I know how the prodigal felt, believe it or not. I haven't been clear all the way to the far country yet. But I recall a certain Friday afternoon during one of the two years that I spent at Mount Vernon Academy. Mount Vernon's about an hour's drive from Worthington. And uh, one of the most likely connecting routes is right past the house that I grew up in. I was there at Mount Vernon, and I started adding up my responsibilities for the weekend and found amazingly that I didn't have a whole lot that I was responsible for that weekend. Being the accompanist for choir, that didn't happen very often. But there was a weekend that I didn't have to be doing various things. And I thought it would be fun to just go home. Well, I didn't have a car. In those days, academy students didn't have cars. But there was a family friend who drove a commercial vehicle from Mount Vernon Academy on a very regular route, and I knew which way he drove, and I knew roughly when. So on a bit of a whim, I went and got permission, signed out for weekend leave, and hopped a ride with Mr. Richardson without any advance notice to my folks, totally unplanned, and showed up at my door along about supper time Friday evening. Nothing illegal with that, is there? I hope. But at supper that evening, I said something really stupid. Really stupid. But it was genuine anyway, even though it was stupid. You figure out what that means. I said, I feel like I don't really deserve to be here. And my aunt and my mother looked at me and kind of... I had been brought up to live a responsible life and do the right thing at the right time and be where I was supposed to be, and here I was. I had... I hadn't really played hooky, but it sort of felt like it. And here was the prodigal son. Did I deserve to be home that evening? I don't know if deserve has anything to do with it. I had covered my bases. I was being welcomed at home. But it gave me a little handle on the prodigal's speech. Was the prodigal ever worthy to be called a son? Not really. Not really. It doesn't matter. Worth has nothing to do with it. He was a son not because he was good. He was a son because he was born there. He could not give up his sonship by being bad. He was still a son. And he was therefore in that sense still worthy. He hadn't lived worthily, but he still belonged. Is God worthy? Is God worthy of our trust? Is God worthy of our love? Is God worthy of our service? Is God worthy of our praise? Psalm 18.3, the Lord is worthy to be praised. Okay, so we settled that. You just don't ever have to worry about that one again. 
Psalm 18.3, the Lord is worthy to be praised. On what basis is God worthy to be praised? He's the creator God, precisely right. But he didn't stop there, which is a good thing for us. Revelation 4.11, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they were created. Does that include you? You were created for his pleasure. Don't forget it. But Revelation 5.9 gives us more. Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us. Lost my place here. Hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Our redemption, accomplished through his humiliation and suffering, unfolds a vastly deeper reason, a deeper basis for our homage, revealing a worthiness that you and I could never have even dreamed of. We couldn't have invented on our own. Revelation 5.12, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Is God worthy of more than an hour a week of our time? I should hope so. Of how much is God worthy? Everything. Everything. Everything you are, everything I am. All the time I have. He deserves it all. It's all his. So what is worship? Worship is our acknowledging of his worthiness. So when do we do that? 24-7, folks. 24-7. The whole time. So then what do we do with this thing on Sunday morning? Ha, sorry, Sabbath morning. Carson puts it in an interesting way. Worship is the proper response of all moral sentient beings to God. I like that. Worship is the proper response of all moral sentient beings to God, ascribing all honor and worth to their creator God precisely because he is worthy, delightfully so. Carson's words. C.S. Lewis, in his book Reflections on the Psalms, has a passage which I have found very useful in discussing the matter of praise. Lewis started off finding himself very put off by the repeated admonitions in the great Old Testament hymn book, Praise God, Praise the Lord. And particularly, what stuck in his craw was Psalm 50:23, Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me. You put those words in the mouth of any human being, you've got an egotist. And Lewis had to say to himself, is that God too? How do I understand that? Does God's ego require such feeding that he must entice praise, wheedle praise out of his subjects to make him feel good? Can such induced admiration ever give God any satisfaction? If it does, that doesn't say anything very nice about the character of God as we understand character. But Lewis had the capacity to not stop at the obvious, to keep on looking. And he pondered not only the nature, but the usefulness of praise. He observes some books are admirable. And if you'd rather think paintings or gardens or sculpture or any other sort of thing, some things are admirable, by which he means they have in themselves enough integrity, 
enough vision that they deserve to be recognized. And I'm back to the human level of worthiness. So there are people who are worthy in various regards. There are things that are so well done that we should respect them, that they deserve to be acknowledged as good, good work. Not all such works ever get the admiration they should have. There are some very good things. I mentioned uh, Harold Miller's hymn from the old hymn book, which is a very, very good hymn. A good text, a good tune, deserves to be admired, and nobody used it. And all the pastors in the domination said, not that one. And there are some things that are not worthy that get a lot of admiration. You know that as well. But if I do not admire something that deserves admiration, that does not detract from the value of the thing. It only shows me how stupid I am or shows the rest of the world how stupid I am. Yeah? The respect or lack of respect has no real bearing on the worth of the object itself. Whether people respect it does not make it worthy or not worthy of respect. Instead, such works judge us. If we do not see their value, we show ourselves to be insensitive. And that's unfortunate. But he says there's more than that. When I read a really good book, I'll give you a list of some there on the back that I think are really good books. I could give you a lot more, but that's a good start. When I read a really good book, or I come across a really gorgeous wildflower, my wife and I are both wildflower photographers as amateurs, and we've got some pretty decent shots of some incredibly beautiful Nodding ladies' tresses. I'm sorry, I'm diverging here. Nodding ladies' tresses. You know what nodding ladies' tresses are? No, you don't know. They're orchids. They're orchids that are about three-sixteenths of an inch long. And they grow around a stem. And the whole stem is about that tall. And when you get down close enough to look, you see textures on the petals. Or when I hear a really, truly magnificent piece of music, my first desire is to share it with somebody, or at least share my response with somebody. As Lewis says, there's nothing worse than hearing a joke that really catches your attention, and the person who would know it, who, who would respond to it best, died last week. Who are you going to tell it to? But the joke isn't as good if you can't tell it to somebody. You need to be able to share it. Saying something laudatory helps to fill up my measure of appreciation. It shows me how much more I really value this thing if I can share it. My own enjoyment, no matter how full it is, can always be expanded by praising the work to somebody else who also understands. And you know as well as I, it's frustrating if we're uh, perhaps driving down the road and we come sunset time and I look over at the sky over there and it's just one of those nights when you go, <gasps> you know, okay? And the only other people in the car are asleep. And all I can do is go, <gasps> All by myself. <laughs> it's kind of frustrating, you know? Or maybe I pointed out to somebody, he's busy reading a book, he says, you know, I'm nice. I want to share it. I want to make something extra out of it. I want to praise it. And the praising of it is part of my enjoyment of it. It's part of my appreciation for it. God is giving us the opportunity to enhance our favorable appraisal of how great he is when he says we can worship him. That's marvelous. That's a privilege. We enter into a deeper level of fellowship with him and with the people down here both, all at the same time. Might it be that our attitude toward God actually judges us? 
If we somehow can't grasp the immensity of his merit, his greatness, does that say more about the fact that he's not so great? Or about us for not being able to recognize true worth when we see it? If all of redeemed creation and all of never needed redeeming creation is going to ascribe ultimate worthiness to the Lamb, doesn't it make me look pretty stupid if I miss out? We said in the first hour that music is species-specific. It even identifies our species. Man will music, and I'm using it as a verb now, do music in whatever sense you're doing is, whether it's listening to or performing or conducting or whatever. Man will music even at the expense of 100 lashes. Or his cello being bombed out from under him. Or he will feel the contraction of his soul if he doesn't. One or the other. Then how could we come to God, who designed our race right down to the last detail, who knew us as we heard this morning, before we were ever formed? How could we come to him in an activity intended to acknowledge his creative worthiness without expressing ourselves in praise? We couldn't. We cannot possibly. If the Spirit has drawn us and his Spirit is drawing us, there is something within us which compels us to sing his glory and his praise. I already mentioned Zephaniah 3, 16 and 17. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear Zion. Let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. The Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you in his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. What moves God to sing? Love? Love. God sings love songs. His own kind. God sings love songs. Of an altogether transcendental sort, a love that could devise a way to save fallen man and figured it was worthwhile to endure humiliation to accomplish the redemption of just me. Of just you. God sings because he's happy. God sings because he rejoices. He sings in tender triumph over the one sheep that was found and recovered and restored to the flock of the universe. What does he sing? Ah, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I want to find out. But the immensity of that love which moves him to sing should draw out at least some feeble response, yeah, from me? Think so? Maybe even a vivid response from me? Probably so. The earliest merging of music and worship that we know about apparently, was under David, the shepherd, warrior, king, and the services at the temple. 4,000 singers. Ooh. I'm a choir director. I'm getting jealous already. 4,000 singers. I don't know if they all sang at the same time, maybe by courses, but I don't care. 4,000 singers and instrumentalists participating in an exquisitely planned liturgy extolling the virtues of the promised Savior. Did it make a spectacle? Yeah. In the best sense of the word. It was some spectacle. Was it done for the sake of the spectacle or done for the sake of the Savior? There's the difference. If God is an excellent creator, and if he has produced an excellent world, in orders of magnitude vastly more beautiful than we have left after 6,000 years of messing with it, does not his worship deserve the highest level of excellence we can reach? What do you think David, what moved David to write Psalm 119? 
Y'all know how Psalm 119 is put together? Half of you do, I'll bet. The other half, maybe not sure. It's a humongous acrostic. Eight verses, each of which begins with the next letter in the alphabet. That's a mental challenge. You think he got paid extra for that one? I don't think so. What made him do it? Love. Love for God. Respect for his law. And he wanted to do something special, something extra, something beyond. What do we bring to God when we come to worship? What can we bring to God when we come to worship? Can we bring him money to make him rich? Who says that if he were hungry, he wouldn't bother to tell us? No, but he says bring an offering and come into his courts. Can we bring him our remarkable insights and understandings, our good minds, every ray of light and truth and every scientific knowledge originated with him who gives to all men liberally and without scolding? Can we bring him beauties, things that he wouldn't have thought of to enjoy aesthetically? Who makes the grass of the field which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven and it's more beautiful than than, than Solomon in all his glory? No, we cannot bring him those things. But we are fools if we bring him any less. We are ungrateful if we bring him any less. All we can bring him, as Marva Dawn says, is our puny, miserable sinfulness. And at his hand we receive restoration, forgiveness, acceptance, exaltation, hope, compassion, and graciousness. And yet, as we come to worship, we do bring him something. We bring him what we have made of ourselves in the seven days between. In those intervening days, if we have made ourselves more calloused by playing Grand Theft Auto, that increasingly calloused self is what we bring to worship. If we have cheapened our grasp of his greatness by profaning his name all week long, we bring him a less sensitive awareness of his great perfection, which is what his name stands for. If we have dulled our senses by too little sleep and too little exercise and too much food and too much noise blasting in our earbuds, we bring him an offering blemished by our own indolence or disrespect. How we perceive our relation to him will be seen by the way we cooperate or do not cooperate with his efforts to restore us to physical, mental, and spiritual and social wholeness. Our attitude toward worship will reveal much of what we have become in the six days between. Which is why Marvadon has a marvelous, marvelous chapter on why we must limit exposure to the media. Worthwhile chapter. Does God work with us and in us to enhance our lives as we bring him worship? I'm going to bring you a story from a culture that is not the Adventist culture, but it's a fascinating story and I think it speaks to us anyway. A Benedictine monastery, full of post-Vatican II zeal, decided to implement many changes in their prayer life. One of the things they discarded was the habit of getting up in the middle of the night and chanting matins. I'll mention just briefly, if you don't know the services, the monks in a monastery have eight services along through the day, and they start very early, before sunrise, and the last one is way, way down there at night. And during these services, they chant the psalms, and the services are so structured that every week, they go through all 150 psalms, singing them. What a potential for blessing. Well, Matins comes at something like 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. 
that interrupts your night's sleep pretty badly. So they decided to give up getting, uh, getting up and singing matins. Instead, they substituted a spoken or even privately read divine office in place of the chanted office, which usually took place. In other words, they still got up the same hour. But instead of all putting on their habits and getting down to the wherever to sing together, they just read the psalm, sing it themselves. The monks began to complain about being tired. Their complaining brought a series of doctors to the cloister. The first doctor said, of course they were tired. They got up in the middle of the night. So the monastic schedule was changed. They didn't get up any longer, much less sing or speak or read for an hour. The doctor overlooked the fact that monks in this order had been rising and chanting since the 6th century without any complaints. The schedule change did no good. Another doctor was called in who knew at once the problem must be the lack of meat in their diet. It was clear these modern-day monks with their heavy teaching schedules couldn't maintain their strength without more meat, so they added meat to the diet, again without noticing that monks in this order had gone without much meat for 1,500 years. Thorough environmental, psychological, and physical analyses were done. Finally, the French physician Thomas was brought in. He immediately restored the old schedule and the old diet, and most important, he restored the chant. Within 10 days, he could report that all fatigue was banished from the cloister. Once they began to chant, they could give up that hour of sleep and forget the meat and still be able to enjoy the kind of vigor which makes the average life expectancy of a monk more than 90 years. Oh, oh. Does that mean now that our new start programs have to add singing to the regimen? <laughs> Something there is about us that wants to do things the easy way. Why else did somebody devise a way to put wheels on luggage? And I have to admit it did help bringing in the handouts this morning. But worship is an enterprise where doing it the easy way dilutes it and dilutes its value. There's an interesting book entitled Exit Interviews by William Hendricks. Exit Interviews isn't, isn't in the bibliography. In this book, Hendricks talked to 15 or 16 or so young people who had simply slipped out the back door of institutional Christianity, not Adventism, Christianity in general. One rather startling conclusion presented itself once he had analyzed the data that he got. Not one. Not one of those with whom he spoke left because worship was too deep. And I'm going to say it again. Not one left because worship was too deep. Some departed because of inadequate intellectual challenge. Some departed because of musical ineptness. Some departed because of insufficient attention to developing character or a sense of community. Hmm. Willow Creek Community Church, you know the name? Bill Hybels, up outside Chicago, has long been a leader in and a model of seeker-driven services. We're going to talk more about that in the sixth session tomorrow morning. Many a congregation has tried to figure out how Bill Hybels does what he does to get thousands of people to come to the 11 o'clock service. And many, many churches have arduously copied the high-energy extravaganzas which were presented then without understanding one very crucial fact. Hybels himself does not consider the 11 o'clock Sunday morning service to be his church's worship service. The worship service for the faithful is on Wednesday night. 
But the rest of Christianity, looking at his great success bringing numbers in, has copied what he does as evangelism and tried to call it worship. They're not the same, folks. I'm not saying the pastor shouldn't call people to the altar in worship. I am saying that the functions are different and have a right to be different, and we have not explored the difference always carefully. Immediately, a new convert would be, once he was recruited into the church, he was recruited to do something for the church. Maybe he was a parking lot attendant. Maybe he did something else of that sort. But the theory was that those who would immediately become active in the fellowship would thereby become stronger Christians. Interesting. Spiritual growth was expected to follow activity as long as it took place within the Christian environment. And the reason I bring this up now is because there is a new book out entitled Reveal, Where Are You?, which is a study done by the staff of Willow Creek Church. And it is in the order of a public confession. And it says, essentially, we were wrong. It hasn't worked. And for the number of people who like to come trucking along and catching on to the latest fad and seeing how somebody else does it, and who grab at whether they understand or not, This is a major jolt, or should be. Here's a striking sentence from what has to be an unbelievably difficult confession from the staff of the church. This is from the book. Quote, we made a mistake. We have done what we should have done when people crossed the line of faith and became Christians. We should have started telling people and teaching people that they have to take responsibility to become self-feeders. We should have gotten people, taught people how to read their Bible between services. How to do the spiritual practices much more aggressively on their own. According to the report, nearly one in four members of that fellowship are by their own evaluation stalled in their spiritual growth or dissatisfied with the church, many of whom are considering leaving. Furthermore, the most dissatisfied group within the church, according to the survey, was those considered to be the most spiritually mature. They want more. They weren't getting more. Nobody left because worship was too deep. They desire more challenge and depth from the services. And 60% would like to see more in-depth Bible teaching. If you'd like to read the reviews, they're on the Adventist Review website. A couple of opinion piece articles on their archives. I have to give you one more. Bernice Johnson Reagan is one of the founders of a little singing gospel group known as Sweet Honey in the Rock. You know? A little bit? Okay. Regarding the time of her own spiritual coming of age, she reports this way. Quote, I became a member of the church and a Christian. After that, I didn't act the same. I was less frivolous in the way I conducted myself. I can also remember thinking that if I was really a Christian, I had to learn to sing more difficult songs. And she points out a truly significant distinction in these words. Quote, It was good news to lay down the world and shoulder the cross of Jesus. It's not a good time, but it's good news. We like the good time. The good time is not necessarily the good news. There's a difference. Worship should not be easy. Worship should not be entertaining. Worship should not be convenient. Worship, as Marvadon puts it in the title of one of her chapters, worship ought to kill us. 
We say it already has. We've been buried in the water as evidence that we are dead. The worship which follows our baptism ought then to represent the newness of life. And the newness of life may not be a good time. But it's good news. Father in heaven, we thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you that you are a great enough God to accept us no matter how foolish we have been. But that you are a great enough God to not want us to stay foolish. We are grateful that you accept us no matter how careless we have been. But that you love us enough to not want us to stay careless. We ask that you will help us to think clearly about the depth of our worship, about the depth of our experience with you, about the depth of our knowledge of you, and to be willing to dig deeper, to learn more, to give more, because by your grace you have made us more. In Jesus' name. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC generation of youth for christ if you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation or if you would like to learn more about gyc please visit www.gycweb.org you can also find great witnessing media at audioverse.org and at hopevideo.com